From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. Hello, friends. This is Michael Bond, and I'm here with Pastor Todd Stanley. How's it going, everybody? Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about God's wrath today, and uh, <laughs> you know, we always we always start this way. Um, and then I want to get into finances a little bit, in particular, giving to the poor and reinvesting in the kingdom of God. And we'll see what okay. we can get into if we make it through those topics. But first, right. uh, as Christians, do you think that we can become so forgiving that we eliminate the reality of God's wrath from our worldview? If we lose sight of God's wrath, do you think personal revenge becomes more enticing? How should a pastor explain this principle to a person in their congregation who has been the victim of a violent crime? So like when I think about this, I think, you know, obviously we want to encourage people to seek the forgiveness and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And, but I, sometimes I think that we, we hammer that message so much yeah that we lose sight of the reality of God's wrath. And because we lose sight of it, we become more tempted to seek out our own revenge. Because if we think, if we create a, an atmosphere where we think, oh, well, everyone's just forgiven, then if someone wrongs you, I think the fear is, well, they're just going to get away with this and there's not going to be any justice. So... Yeah. I need to execute justice on my own. Right, right. Obviously, that's fallacious thinking. Um, but let's see if we can pull this apart and figure out where the, the misapprehensions are and whether or not those misapprehensions are coming from the church in terms of its teaching or whether it's coming from the culture into yeah. the congregation. Let's kind of pull that apart. Man, I mean, there's a whole lot to unpack there, right? Um I would say having a right view of God's wrath and a right view of God's justice both um, is a deterrent for us, right, from uh, from continuing in a pattern and a path of sin, uh, but is also the thing that can prevent us from enacting vengeance on our own or, mm -hmm. you know, seeking to enact God's wrath for him, right? It can be the thing that, that helps us to rest in. Like, if we under, if we re truly believe that God is just, and that's, that's really one of the first things that we need to understand about God's wrath mm -hmm. is that God's wrath is just. God's wrath is not like ours. It's not vengeful in the sense yeah. that, like, um, if you do wrong to me, then I'm going to reciprocate, right? There's the, you know, we understand that two wrongs don't make a right, but that's how our human sense of justice seems to work oftentimes is like, you know, tit for tat. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not how God's wrath works. God's wrath is just, um, you know, so. So is it more like gravity then? Is, and I've heard that analogy been made before. Um, just this idea that if you try to manipulate the, fabric of reality, it's going to snap back. And that's just the way that it is. And so is God's wrath, um, is it, is it, I guess, is it, is it, does it function kind of like an equation in that way? Um, to where he's more personally removed from it 
and he's he's more reacting to something that we're doing and and that balances the scales is that what we mean by just uh i, th- I think in a sense but 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 the, the the difference is that that scale is balanced in through jesus right um so uh, I've heard it said this way, uh, and I'm not sure who to attribute the quote to, but God's wrath is his love in action against sin, mm. right? And so uh, we see that obviously most clearly in Jesus, right? Where God himself put, you know, Jesus takes on himself the wrath of God, right? The judgment of God against our sin. And if we receive that grace, that if we receive that gift, then, then Jesus, then Jesus' righteousness is, put, you know, imputed to us, right? It's placed on us. God sees us as righteous. Um, J.I. Packer said, "God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil." And mm. so God works to write what has been put wrong or what has been done wrong. Um, and so uh, it's not, well, like I said, it's not us. It's not like at us in, you know, I'm angry because of what happened, so I'm going to react out of anger. Uh, God's, God's wrath is love in action against yeah. sin. Yeah, the point of it is justice, and so the guiding ethic is justice rather than the expression of anger or the dominance of some kind of, uh, primordial right. emotion that a human might have right. in response to an injustice or something, something when someone wrongs you. And now that's so, that's not to say that that's not something that should be feared. The wrath of God is something that should be feared because it's a real thing, and it's only satisfied. So every person, every person's sins will be atoned for. Right? That's what the scripture you know indicates to us that every every sin will be atoned for, either. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, if I receive through faith what Christ has done for me, then God's justice, God's wrath is satisfied in the, in, in the sacrifice of Christ. If I refuse the grace that's been offered to me, then, then I will bear the, the weight of my sin. I will atone for my sin. And the way that Scripture says that we, that's atoned for is, is an eternity separated from God, right? That's not, not receiving the grace that's been offered through Jesus is hell, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and we don't really like to... We don't really like to talk about that reality very much, but that's the, that's the reality, that every sin will be atoned for. The question is whether or not I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer for my own sin or whether I'm going to trust in what Jesus has done and and God's wrath is satisfied in that way. Yeah, so maybe that's the angle that a pastor might take with someone. So I kind of ca- try to couch this question in what would happen if a pastor has someone in their congregation who was the victim of a violent crime or maybe like a loved one was a victim of a violent crime. And I think that you can get some peace of mind and security whenever you approach the problem from that perspective of whatever has happened and whatever is happening and whatever will happen in this space Mm -hmm. will be atoned for if it is sin and and so there's nothing that escapes judgment and we can find security in terms of understanding that the person isn't going to get away with it we can find security in the fact that 
if they are, if they seek grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, well, that's something that we should be happy about. I mean, I know that's a really right. hard haul for someone who's been <laughs> the victim of a violent crime yeah. or something yeah. like that. It, that is tough for us. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how it could be easy, right? Um, because because a sense of justice is built into us, right? God, the word, the scriptures say that God has written His law on our hearts, right? He's written, and uh, and so so man, yeah, we we want justice to be served, um, but what the scripture tells us, right? As you know, God says, "Vengeance is mine," says the Lord. I will be the one who repays. And that's the thing that we have to trust in. Do we believe that God is good, mm-hmm. right? Do we believe that God is just? Because if I believe that God is just, then I don't have to put my hands to something. I can, I can, you know, and that doesn't mean that we don't seek justice. It doesn't mean we don't, you know, like if there are legal things involved, it doesn't mean we don't allow the legal system to do what it does, you know, but we don't, we, we don't take, ownership, right? I, I, I don't have to be the one who enacts justice. I don't mm-hmm. have to be the one who uh, enacts vengeance. I can trust that the Lord will, even if it is, even if it's in eternity, right? Even if it's not in the here and now, even if it's, you know, either in this life or the next, God yeah. will ensure. But, and, but that's difficult sometimes for us to trust in. Man, I sat with, I sat with a dad this morning, just this morning, who uh, has a, a child who was assaulted, and he talked to me about how difficult it was for him to do nothing, yeah, and to allow allow the legal system to do what it you know to do process to be done to allow you know to trust that that God is taking care of things and that God I mean that's tough man that's a tall mm-hmm. order right. Uh, but, but that's what God calls us to, to trust that he sees, that he knows, that he, and that, that me responding in anger towards someone else uh, is not going to be the thing that satisfies the, the justice of God or satisfies the wrath yeah. of God, um, that I have to leave that to the Lord. And that's hard. We we want to control all kinds of things. It's not just it's not just these issues. We want to control everything. Right. Right? Which is we, when you boil it back all down, that I mean that's the root of sin is our desire to take hold of things mm-hmm. that really belong to God. Right? And um and be the master of my own domain, be the master of my own destiny, be the master of my own, you know, I get to decide what's right for me. I get to do, you know, like we want to put our hands in all kinds of things. And the end result of that is that, you know, like we end up in shame. We end up separated from God. We end up separated from other people and we have to trust the Lord. Yeah, I think it's important to point out too that our deference to the legal system is not an expression of doubt in God's justice because there are other purposes for the legal system apart from justice itself. Well, God I mean, established a legal system, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and like, you know, if, if, if you don't have it, then you have complete chaos. You have societal instability. Like you have these things that the deterrence of the legal system is actually functionally really important to be able to coexist with people. And so I think sometimes what Christians might perceive is that because pastors and church leaders 
defer to actual like he, they defer to legal systems that are here in the in this temporal space they defer to law enforcement i think maybe they sometimes perceive that well if you accept that law enforcement might bring justice maybe that's because you're not really sure whether or not god is going to bring justice and so we're just trying to play both talk out of both sides of our mouths here right but right. but i think that the way to remedy that doubt or that perception is to understand that there are purposes for the legal system as we know it in this life that go yeah that, that are uh what tangential i think i'm using the wrong Tangential. Word. yeah to to actually to the uh the justice part of it like they're they're the, part of it yeah. is stability deterrence like just safety sometimes just removing people from a population yeah well and you know scripture is clear that that you know, earthly authorities that God, that God puts them in place, right? And that they're there to, to wield the sword, right? They're there to enact justice. And so that's what those systems are put in place for. So because, because God is interested in justice, but the problem is that we, 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 be, we then put justice at an individual level rather than at a community level. And then that just becomes, it becomes chaos. Because if, if every individual is able to enact justice on their own. Well, then, th- well, there's no there's no standard for what justice is to start with. I mean, mm-hmm. what what I may feel like I need to seek recompense for, you know, that that's that's a pretty arbitrary a lot of times, yeah. right? Uh, and so there has to be a standard, and the the justice system, world earthly authorities are put into place to say these are the things. This is the standard for justice, um, and and so that society can function. This, these are the rules that we yeah. all are governed by. And if it's working appropriately, and if it's designed appropriately, what it does is it it reflects the character of God in some sense, right? Because this goes back to I think couple episodes ago maybe last episode we talked about speed limits and how really what the speed limit is doing is it's reflecting our value for human life and so that should be part of our legal code too if our legal code is not is not maladapted and if it's functioning properly then what it does is it takes the character of god and it we try to instantiate that in the code itself so that it reflects his character and then therefore gives us a way a mode of being or a way to live that actually works because we're you know walking in the righteousness of god let's say and so one one of the things i want to touch on before we go to the next topic is when a person comes to you and they bring like an accusation not against you but maybe against someone else. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like this happened to me, this person did this thing to me. Um, and probably what's most culturally uh, prominent w- with regards to this uh, particular scenario would be something like sexual assault. Um, when a person comes forward to you with something like that or brings something like that to you, how do you handle that? Like w- what are your first steps um, you know, I went to a, a conference once where this question was fielded by a set of pastors and they were trying to sort out like, what are the wrong things to do? And one of the things that they had determined was not correct was to doubt the person who's coming to you and yeah. bringing you the news to doubt them because you're not sure about whether or not the, the accused is actually guilty. And 
the solution to that was, okay, you don't have to doubt the person who's coming forward to you just because you take their story seriously and you, uh, you accept it as if it's true doesn't mean that you are convicting the accused, right? Like you can hold both of those things at the same time. And I think that's where a lot of people stumble and they, and they mess up. So maybe walk me through the first steps. If someone comes to you and confides in you with this kind of thing, like, how are you handling that as a pastor? Oh man. I mean, the first thing I want to do is, is sit with that person in their grief, you know? I mean, whatever, whatever may have happened, uh, they're hurting, right? And you need to respond to that. You need to, you need to be sensitive to that. You need to walk with them in that. You need to pray with them in those moments. You need to, uh, to take seriously what it, what it is that's going on, right? Uh, but I would also be clear to them. So, hey, we're going to, we're, we're going to figure this out, right? Um, which means that there are going to be a lot of questions that get asked and there are going to be, it's going to be a process and it's not going to be easy. And you're probably going to have to talk about this a lot more, right? We're going to have to, and, and are you prepared, you know, to, for, for people to know about, you know, what's happened because that's, that's going to be a reality in, in, in this, you know, especially, so if we're talking, especially about say a sexual assault issue, like, are you prepared to sit in court and testify and, and, um, and I certainly, I don't want to dissuade them from that. I just, I want them to be prepared for the reality of that, right, that yeah. the unfortunate thing is you have to relive if, if the trauma in a public space, right? That it's hard, right? And so you want to try to prepare them for that. You want to, you know, um, I always want to come back to, to the cross on, you know, and help them to see, look, that you have a, you have a, a savior, a friend of, you know, who has walked through, you know, being brutalized, being torn apart, being, you know, spat on and mocked and like in a very public way. And, you know, so, so God understands God has, you know, God fellowships with you in that suffering. God walks with you in that. Uh, and so I want to take, like I say, take those things seriously. I want to do my best to, to be a friend to them, to be a comfort to them. Um, but also want to prepare them for, for what that's going to look like as we move forward. Uh, and then, um, you know, um, depending on if the accused is a part of my church, uh, or not, that looks a little bit different, right? If they're not a part of my church, then really, uh, my job is to walk with the, 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 you know, the person who's part of my congregation, uh, help them with the legal process, all that kind of thing. If the accused is also part of my church, then the next step is to sit down with them, right? Now, uh, that doesn't that doesn't mean we don't do the legal thing because certainly it, the the person who uh, has been assaulted, if they are prepared to go to the authorities, you go and you do that. But then you also sit down with the person who's been accused because you're going to need to set some clear boundaries between them and the other person. You're going to need to establish what this looks like um, as far as their church attendance and how that might be affected. Um, You want to let them know that you love them as well, uh, that you're committed to discovering the truth. And so if there's been a false accusation made, um, you want to uncover that whatever, but you want to uncover the truth, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to let them know, look, this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard on you. 
and um, you know, and so the reality is that you know uh, there may be a need for them to to you know attend church somewhere else or attend a different service or be uh, be willing to you know. Um, you know, put some boundaries in place, whatever that might look like. You have yeah. to establish that. Yeah, I really like what you said about bringing Christ into the conversation, particularly with the person who's bringing the the trauma forward to you, and the especially with with regards to the possibility of them having to testify publicly and having to bear shame publicly. Because the reason I like it is because, at the very least, reminding a person that Jesus did that um, will help them. I think it's useful for them as they're going through the pain of it to know that they are actually emulating Christ in, in respect to that part of his story. And so the thing that they're doing as they're bearing their shame publicly is a Christ like thing, which I think could help serve to encourage them. And, um, you know, at least, at least remind them that they are walking a path that their God has also walked. And so it it may help it feel less wrong in the moment. Um, anyway, that's super heavy stuff, but I think that that's, uh, that's all very useful insight. Okay. So I want to shift gears here and I want to talk about almsgiving. And so when I think about almsgiving, I think giving to the poor, um, could you explain for our listeners the difference between the tithe and what it means to give alms or give to the poor? And, and do you think that benevolence programs, you know, let's just, let's just start there with that first one and we'll get into benevolence programs after. So tithe and almsgiving, like how are those distinguished and, uh, how should a Christian view those two topics just on? Yeah. Um, well, man, I mean, you know, this is really contentious, and I've heard people, you know, especially in regard to the tithe, um, I've heard people, you know, talk about, well, you know, we no longer live under the law, and you know, all those kinds of things, and they're right, you know. Uh, in fact, I would say if you if you find a church that's preaching the tithe as if it's a law, and you're going to go to hell if you don't pay tithes, then um, they, that's not correct, right? Uh, but tithe is a principle. Right. Not only is it a principle in God's word, it's one that God detaches promise to. Right. If you bring the tithe into the storehouse. Right. And then God says, test me and see in this if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you. So so it is a a principle that God has attached a promise to. Um, And so but it is about supporting the local church. You know, Um, it is about you know, investing in the work of the kingdom in your local community through the local church, right? And so um, the the pooling of resources in that way allows for a, a lot of things, right? There are things, for example, supporting uh, ministries, partners that we have like around the world that we're, that people's tithe empowers that. And those are things that unless someone is really well connected or really searching hard to find ministries to support that's something you just the average person is not going to be able to do on their own right because they don't they don't have the kind of network that it takes to do that or man how many you know they don't have the ability to vet ministries to know whether or not because unfortunately there are some out there that you know that we don't need to be supporting right and so um so paying tithe into the local church 
empowers that kind of ministry, empowers that kind of possibility uh, to do things that the average person can't do on their own. Now, what that doesn't do, though, is then exonerate us from caring for our neighbor, mm-hmm. right? And so then, which is where alms would come in, where, like, if there is a need that I see that I am able to meet, then I should meet it. I should care for the people that are around me. And this is true all throughout the Scripture, right? We don't see anywhere, you know, and of course tithing uh, is mostly discussed in the Old Testament. There are some times in the New Testament when when it's talked about. Jesus, for example, uh, tells the, you know, discusses the fact that the Pharisees tithe on, on their spices and they, you know, mm-hmm. they're really, you know, uh, serious about all of that and but they neglect some weightier things in the law uh and then there are a few other places but but mostly it's talked about in the old testament so but what we see there is that not only were israelites uh required to bring the tithe um but they were also still responsible for caring for their neighbor mm-hmm. and i don't think that changes yeah so there's a couple things that i think that you've laid out that are pretty interesting so first um, the vehicle of the church allows some protection against. So say you just said, Oh, I'm just going to give to charity instead of, instead of paying the tithe. And that's how I'm going to approach my Christian generosity. Well, pay, well, giving to the church helps protect against fraud. Well, it should, (laughs) if the the church isn't actually committing fraud, um, it helps ensure that the money that you're giving is being spent on reinvestment in the kingdom of God and the community around you. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of takes a lot of the logistical side of it off of your plate. And it also is the case that many churches have the tools and they have the connections and the networks to be able to vet ministries, like you said, and, and yeah. to to know what is worthy of donation and what isn't. And uh, for an individual, that kind of thing can be more difficult. And the thing is, is like, you're going to spend your money somewhere. Right. And the, the way you spend your money ends up shaping the world. Uh, you know, and, and we get into like the, the, the Apple and the MacBook kind of thing. Uh, this is an easy one. It's low hanging fruit because everyone kind of knows about <laughs> this. Uh, you know, the, the malpractice of China and the way that they produce these kinds of things. Um, and yet we are giving money that is fueling that malpractice. And I think people kind of know that, okay, my dollars are going towards, possibly towards concentration camps and various other uh, terrifying means of production uh, overseas. Now, whether or not that, whether or not that indicts us ethically, I think is a separate conversation because there's so many layers between, you know, where we spend the dollar and, you know, the way that they choose to use it, all of that. But we understand at least in principle that, the power, like people say it all the time that money makes the world go round. Like this is almost culturally understood the power of money to influence the things around you. And so Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you then influence it for the good? And so that's one of the other, I think ideas that is attached to the principle of the tithe. Um, and so when it comes to like, uh, let's say benevolence programs, yeah. Uh, do you think that benevolence programs that the church might have are sufficient alternatives for individual almsgiving. So I, I think sometimes that benevolence programs, um, while in principle they are good, 
sometimes they, I think that um, they can be used as just ways to simplify Christian giving by running all of it kind of through the church, which may not be a bad thing. I guess it just depends on what your benevolence programs are doing and how, you know, how effective they are. Yeah. Um, but you had said earlier that tithing doesn't exonerate you from individual almsgiving or taking care of your neighbor. Right. And what are, what would be some of the things, I guess, spiritually, uh, in terms of your personality or in terms of the way that you see the kingdom of God moving around you, what is, what is lost when there's this layer of separation between you and the benefit of what your dollar is doing? So when I think about this, I think like if you give to the church, yes, you know that the church is helping the community mm-hmm. and you're adding to the pool that is being used to help the community. But I wonder if it's different sometimes. And again, not to say that you shouldn't give to the church and you should only do this. Like we're not talking about either or here, but I think if we end up talking about either or, we may lose something when it, if, if we if we forsake the individual almsgiving because something about hand-to-hand transfer, yeah. about seeing your neighbor in need and then seeing your generosity lift that person up, it maybe helps validate the idea itself of advancing the kingdom of God and of taking care of your neighbor. What is that? What do you lose spiritually and personally if you just kind of detach yourself from that and you do forsake individual almsgiving in service to just giving more and more money to the church? Yeah. Well, I think the answer to it is that it has to be, a, you have to have a holistic approach to, to serving, right? It's if I, if I just throw money at something and I'm not personally invested, well, yeah, then there's going to be a level of detachment. And number one, it's going to be easy for me to, to justify my lack of involvement in alleviating whatever the problem is because I've thrown some money at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then number two, it also then becomes easy for me to stop giving money because I don't have a real understanding of what is happening. Right. Right. And so um, we have to have a, a holistic approach to generosity. It's not just about our money. It's about everything. It's about living like Christ. Right. So um, I, I, I can't imagine a scenario in which, which Jesus would go, yeah, I'm not going to help with that because I've already done enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, really? Uh, and and in in truth, he has done more than enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he continues to pour blessing upon top of blessing. Right. He continues to to intervene in people's lives. He continues to to you know hear and respond to our prayer. He could do, you know he is personally invested. And involved, and and so it has to be the same for us. We we can't. Um, I mean, if if there's a if there's a thing in me that allows me to see a person in need and just walk away, I need to ask why. I mean, what is that yeah. about? Um, if there's a thing in me that goes, you know. Well, I know my neighbor's hurting, but I gave some money to the church so they can, you know, man, I mean, that seems 
<laughs> it just seems yeah like you so nietzsche uh sometimes referred to people who as bloodless scholars and the idea was that, that there are people who okay i'm just going to study ideas forever and i'm going to do what i can to to um contribute to the intelligentsia but i'm not i'm not going to go near people yeah like i'm just going to stay uh secluded in my ivory tower and that's where i'm going to be and he you know didn't think that was good but um okay so when you think about christian generosity though i I wonder sometimes because i think what we're dancing around here is that sometimes with money you can have enough of it that giving it doesn't cost you right much like it's you know you you can make it look like you're being generous because you might actually be giving a lot of money it's just that you have a whole lot more kept back yeah and so you can make a show of generosity in that way but is it the case that christian generosity doesn't really even begin until sacrifice is present or should we not think of it like that because you know you hear people say like the 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 trope is give until it hurts and like that's been really (coughs) abused and misused across history um but the piece of that that i think might present a kernel of truth is that it seems like generosity in the context of taking care of your neighbor usually involves some kind of sacrifice yeah like it's you giving of yourself right. for the other person and so the the spiritual attitude that i think leads to people just throwing money at, at things is the unwillingness to come to contact come into contact with that sacrifice and so then it, it becomes an issue of like, oh, I'll just give money and then I don't have to deal with all this other stuff. Yeah. So what I would say is that our giving should not be limited to, or our generosity should not be limited to what is comfortable. That's where we get into trouble. Uh, Whether it is my generosity with my, my time and myself in serving others, right? Whether it's my... So for some people, that's the thing that they're not willing to do. They're not willing to to give up some of their leisure time or, or free time or, you know, uh, they're not willing to do something that's uncomfortable for them to serve someone else, right? Uh, for others, it's, man, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go serve somebody all day long. I'll go physical labor, like I'll, I'll work hard for an a organization in the community or I'll mow my neighbor's lawn or, you know, what, you know, they don't have any trouble giving physically in that way, like being generous with their time and their energy. But ask them to give like monetarily to something, and that's super uncomfortable. And so I would say our generosity can't be limited to what is comfortable for us. It's when we allow that to happen that we find ourselves in trouble because we're not living in a holistic way. We're not expressing the generosity of God in it, and we're not trusting the Lord, right? What, so if I'm unwilling to give financially, what I'm saying is, Lord, I don't trust you to provide for me. If I'm unwilling to give of myself um, sacrificially to someone else to serve them, then what I'm saying is, Lord... Uh, you've not served me well, or, (laughs) you know, and we may not be saying that consciously, but that's really what we're saying. Like, Lord, uh, my time is more important than theirs, Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, any, any number of things really that, that could pop up, but, uh, it, it diminishes the gift that we've received in. So we, we may not, you know, the scriptures say freely we have received freely, we should give, um, but if there's an area in my life where I'm not 
able to give freely or not willing to give freely, then then maybe there's a misunderstanding that I still have about what Christ has done for me and what my reasonable response to that should be. So pastorally, if you have someone who you're shepherding or is your disciple, and you can tell that they have this particular issue, how do you approach the conversation with them without squashing whatever generosity they are doing? Because I feel like this is a dangerous conversation to have with someone Mm -hmm. because it can be, be so easily perceived as unappreciative of the ways in which a person is already being generous but but that's not the aim like you articulated what the aim is already the aim is to figure out the underlying reasons for the hesitancy in a particular area because that denotes a spiritual problem that needs to be worked on yeah and so the aim is is righteous as far as i can tell but as far as approaching the conversation how would you do it so that you can uh prevent the perception of, you know, a person saying, well, you just don't care about like, look, what, look at all the time that I give and all you want is my money. Yeah. Or why do you want me to volunteer? I give, you know, a thousand dollars a month to the church. Why are you asking me to volunteer? Is that not good enough for you? Like, how do you avoid that whenever you're trying to have this conversation with someone in the congregation? Well, I think first thing is in our public discourse, right? We communicate those values all the time time right uh you know our you know like every service almost yeah absolutely i mean um and and not just not just so one of the things one of our practices at summit for example is that we have a teaching moment uh before every giving opportunity right um but we are careful to to talk about that as an an overall life of generosity. We believe that one of the characteristics of God is his radical generosity. And so we communicate that all the time, and not just in terms of our finances, but uh, in terms of serving our neighbor, in terms of you know being generous relationally, in terms of being willing to forgive, right? And uh, it, you know all of those things are generosity. They are the overflow of a generous heart. And so we, we talk about those things. We communicate that as a value. We provide opportunities for people not only to give financially, but to serve, and not just to serve here at the church on the weekends. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of opportunities to do that, but we also have things that are going on in our community all the time. We have small groups that are serving their neighbors, serving other members of their small groups. We have, um, you know, organizations in our community we serve. We, we you know, we have a couple of days a year where we have large church, you know, community-wide efforts where we send teams out into the community and do things. Uh, we have opportunities for people to go um, to, on mission trips, both foreign and domestic, and serve people in other places. I mean, we we make it a priority, and we make it a high value, and we communicate it all of the time, right? And so I think if your public discourse and the things that you're doing as a church communicate that, then it makes those individual conversations a lot easier um, because, you know, um, you're living out that value. Right. Yeah. You're never, you're never hiding the ball. And so, right. When you come to someone, it's like, Hey, you know, we, we talk about this every service. This is what we teach. And so that's why we're having this conversation. It's not that, you know, we're singling you out and we just had, you know, not ever said anything about this. We're catching you off guard. None of that. And there is, I think wisdom 
to doing this every service, like like you had said about the teaching moment that we do before the giving opportunity. Um, and you might be pastoring a church listening to this who, you know, you, <clears throat> you might think that doing it every service is redundant. Uh, but I don't think it's redundant because it, first of all, that's something that I think it's one of the many things that human beings need. <clears throat> Excuse me human beings need continual reminder of. And also if you do it every service and you make that part of your culture, then when a new person comes in, um, they'll be able to hear it for the first time. And so they'll be, they'll be set on the right path from the beginning. And, uh, you know, the, the people who've been coming to your church for years, they won't think, Oh, well, they're just teaching this because they see a new face. You know, they'll know that it's part of the routine. And so it doesn't, it's not as awkward as it sounds. Like I think sometimes churches steer away from this because of how awkward it would feel to kind of teach the same (laughs) thing to the same group of people every weekend. But if you put it into practice, it really is, isn't awkward. Um, and it, I think it serves functionally, it serves a good purpose. Well, and if it, look, if it, if it is an expression of the gospel, right? I mean, we should be teaching the gospel every week. And I, and I don't just mean like the, the principles of God's word, right? Um, certainly we want to be teaching the principles of God's word, right? We want to talk about the things that the scripture has to say about being generous. We want to talk about the things that scripture has to say about being a good parent, being a good husband, being a good employee, being a good boss. I mean, scripture addresses a lot of those things, right? And we want to discuss those things. We want to talk about those things because we want to conform our lives to the the teachings of Scripture. But those have to all be tied to the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because that is the ultimate expression of God's nature, right? All the glory of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily, right? So we want to come back to Jesus, come back to what he accomplished and did on the cross, come back, because these are expressions of the nature of God, right? And so we want to fall in love with Jesus. And as we fall in love with Jesus, then we begin to express the values of the kingdom of heaven, But if we try to teach the values of the kingdom of heaven divorced from the gospel, well, then we just get moralism. Yeah, yeah. And it's empty and it's void. And that's why people kick back so much against it, because we've we've neglected oftentimes, unfortunately, of tying these things to the gospel. It's like this is this is this is our this is our North Star, right? This, this is, we worship Jesus, and this is who Jesus is. And if we are going to be a people who are formed by and informed by who Jesus is, that expresses itself in these ways, right? But if it's just like, well, this is what the Bible says, and this, you know, like, this is what it means to be a good person. This is what it means to be a good Christian. Well, that's a low bar, man. Right, right. You know, but if Jesus is the bar, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, some one of the questions that every person attending church should ask, in addition to because one of the questions that's most frequently asked is, well, how does this relate to me? Well, equally important, maybe more so important, is how does this relate to the gospel? Yeah, and I think you can land virtually any sermon on the gospel. I mean, you can you can chase it back. Well, not only and, can you, you should. Yeah, if it doesn't if it doesn't land with Jesus, if it doesn't end at the cross, well, man, we've what are we doing? Like, this thing is about Jesus, right? <laughs> this thing is about Jesus. If your sermons aren't about Jesus and the, the, 
the ministry that you're doing in the community isn't about pointing people back to Jesus. Like, man, alleviating poverty is a good thing, but if it's not addressing the poverty of people's soul, it's useless. Yeah. And, right? and it's hay and stubble and it's going to burn. And, and we shouldn't fear repetition here and we shouldn't feel like we're repeating it so much that it gets old so to speak because here's the thing we repeat lots of things and we're really glad we can like eating for example you know like you eat dinner and then you repeat the same thing the next day and if you don't get to you're actually very unhappy (laughs) that you didn't get to and so we should view the gospel with the same level of necessity importance as Mm -hmm. something like our very food that we eat and our water that we drink and if we see it from that perspective then we understand that that nourishment every time we gather is not only acceptable and reasonable and not boring and not repetitious but necessary and super important and all of that's there and it's the body and the blood of jesus that is our food and drink it is what nourishes our soul you know the like as 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 good as practical teaching is and we shouldn't abandon practical teaching right it because it it's about formation it helps us to like again how do we live out Christ in our world. And there are very practical things that we need to talk about in terms of that. Uh, But we can't do that divorced from the gospel because it's the gospel that nourishes our souls. It's the gospel that feeds us. It's the gospel that, like, you know, um, yeah, it just, that has to be the thing. It has to be Jesus first. Jesus always yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap this up. I had a, we'll get to the other questions about this next week. I want to give that its own space. I want to give the gospel its own space at the end of this episode, because I think that, uh, man, that's just so, so wise and such an important point to make through all of this, through everything we've talked about, that it all kind of goes back to the whole reason we're doing any of this, which is Jesus and which is the gospel. So thank you guys for listening to the back 40 leadership podcast. It's been a pleasure and, uh, we'll see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.